was in high school when I quietly began telling a few people I was an agnostic. I don't really know now whether this was true or not. The definition of agnostic that pops up on my computer says, it's somebody who believes that it is impossible to know whether or not God exists. A doubter, as opposed to an atheist who knows God does not exist. In any case, for a while I needed to challenge the religious precepts I had grown up with. In part, I was disturbed by the supposed facts of the biblical stories. Many didn't seem plausible. Yet they didn't seem exactly false either. Still, I was full of my own fanciful powers as I bounded out to college and life beyond. Some people could stay away from religion or an explicit spiritual quest for a very long time, maybe even a lifetime. Others of us can't, probably the majority of us really, because we find we're unable to escape the deep questions of our existence rooted in the mystery of our being born and having to die. For most of us, this spiritual questing pilgrimage is full of starts and stops and U-turns and breakdowns. Still, nearly everyone tuning into this service is somewhere on that path. Your participation gives you away. It didn't take me all that long, really, to find my way to my own honest-to-gosh faith and the church that harbors the Jesus tradition and advances his cause. That's because I first fell in love with music. And as I discovered, the great music of the world is profoundly spiritual. It evokes a reality that is quite beyond material skepticism. This reality does not fall within the bounds of scientific proofs, even though music obeys the natural laws of physics. The results are not quantifiable. It was through music that God initially became truly real for me. Shortly before he died, the novelist Kurt Vonnegut suggested his own epitaph in an interview. Vonnegut said, My epitaph should be, The only proof he needed of the existence of God was music. And then he added, It's meant a tremendous amount to me. I'm grateful. I'm really, really grateful for what music has done for me. Why it works, I can't imagine. Well, that's completely consistent with my experience. I don't know why it works the way it does either, but music's language pointed me to God like a compass pointing to true north. Of course, everyone has a unique story concerning how they got started on the Godward path. Each of you have your own tale to tell. Through all sorts of means, then, skepticism gives way to acceptance that, after all, spiritual practice is the appropriate response to life's questions. Most discover that it isn't enough to simply acknowledge the possibility of God's existence because that doesn't really take us anywhere and doesn't satisfy our deepest yearning. At least that's how it was for me. And friends, you know, it matters quite a lot, finally, how we think the universe is organized. In reference to an important scientist philosopher of his day, Ernst Haeckel, the famous preacher, Harry Emerson Fosdick, for whom Riverside Church in Manhattan was built, 
wrote this. Haeckel says that there is no God, only mobile cosmic ether. Imagine a congregation under Haeckel's leadership rising to pray, O mobile cosmic ether, blessed be thy name. It is absurd. Unless God is personal, the deepest meanings of gratitude in human hearts for life and its benedictions have no proper place in the universe. Fosdick wrote that in 1917. Haeckel died in 1919. But now, as it turns out, Haeckel's quasi-scientific philosophical framework in which all economics, politics, and ethics are reduced to applied biology was embraced by the Nazis to affirm their positions on racism, nationalism, and social Darwinism. To claim, for instance, mobile cosmic ether as the fundamental ground beneath one's feet led to some stridently misguided answers to the other big questions. At Christ Church, we speak of a radically personal God who was revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who said the deepest wisdom was this, love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Rich stories of faith have been passed down to us concerning him that seem both historical and mythological at the same time. Stories that are rooted historically, yet imbued with language of transcendence and the imagination. Stories which at first blush strain credulity, but then again beg to be reread and reread and pondered and finally to be understood. So we've been sharing the news of Easter over the last two months. We've retold the stories about how Jesus was crucified and buried. We read of an empty tomb and cryptic angelic messages. Women and men reported personal encounters with this man now miraculously alive. To make matters worse for those of us weaned on the logic of scientific inquiry, like the stories don't agree in their details. Yet this is the record that has been passed on through a hundred generations and more of people attempting to make sense of their lives and to find meaning in their deaths. We are only the latest mortals to find this record strangely and powerfully compelling. It makes music, as it were. And so sometimes skepticism gives way to something else some state of knowing in which we realize that much about our existence is beyond our capacity to explain or quantify. We move into the realm of faith. And faith is not illogical or irrational. Instead, it is transrational. It's a larger frame of reference. Faith is a capacity to embrace a truth that's larger than our language can hold. Now, in the church's yearly cycle, today is known as Ascension Sunday, the last Sunday in our season of Easter. Our first reading from Acts tells the story known as the Ascension of Jesus. This is a story of faith. It concludes the remarkable events that began with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's a story of faith because the disciples' experience could not be contained in the language of material fact. Well, how do you talk about something that is beyond belief yet profoundly true? The early witnesses had this problem. 
The New Testament text is the result of people making sense of what they experienced and knew to be true, providing a record uh, as they explained themselves. And what is it that they're explaining here? Acts was written some 20 or 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, time that had allowed the fledgling church to form and propagate, time enough for thoughtful reflection and gathering together the shared experiences of those who knew and were coming to know Jesus Christ. The barest facts were given. Jesus was a powerful, charismatic teacher and healer. He was crucified as an enemy of the state. He was experienced by many beyond the grave. These experiences came to an end, and yet his promise of spiritual empowerment was kept. The church was born, and his message to love God and neighbor caught hold everywhere it was shared, transforming lives daily. As the story unfolds then, the ascension is the transition from the specifics concerning Jesus to the specifics concerning the birth of the church and the spreading of the message. It's the conjunction. So long as Jesus was around, the message couldn't be larger than his circle of friends. But the earth could not contain him. His leave-taking catalyzed the invitation for humanity to assume its proper responsibility in the scheme of things, to become co-workers with God, to become actors on the stage rather than spectators in the audience, to become actual lovers of people and lovers of justice and righteousness and truth. And this invitation has been extended ever since. It's that invitation that's planted in the heart of all things that resides within God and comes to every generation. As the author of Acts tells the story, while Jesus was going and the disciples were gazing up toward heaven, two men in white robes stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? That's because the dawning of their spiritual maturity had arrived, and it was time to get on with the work that had been gifted to them. No more gawking and hemming and hawing. Time to get on with it. Get on with the work of loving your neighbor, healing the broken, offering justice to the oppressed. What we call the ascension of Jesus, that is, the exaltation of all that he taught and lived the triumph of love over death now resident with God means that each human life is included within the same victory. It's for this reason that person after person, year after year, generation after generation has found his or her life transformed when introduced to the living God. Consider the testimony of the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. Five years ago, I came to believe in Christ's teaching, and my life suddenly changed. I ceased to desire what I had previously desired and began to desire what I formerly did not want. What had previously seemed to me good seemed evil, and what had seemed evil seemed good. It happened to me, as it happens to a man who goes out on some business and on the way suddenly decides that the business is unnecessary and returns home. His former wish to get as far as possible from home has changed into a wish to be as near as possible to it. Suddenly, 
I heard the words of Christ and understood them. And I experienced the joy of life undisturbed by death. Now, my pathway to faith has been different from this, yet I know what Tolstoy was talking about. I understand his music. I know that God at some point picked me up by the lapels and pointed me in a direction as if to say, Steve, this is what life is about. And the gift of faith was given. What I always find so stunning in this Easter season is how the ragtag and cowardly band of disciples are transformed into persons of remarkable strength and conviction. This is faith embodied. It came as gift and they received it. Their Christ was one with God. With his departure, their assignment became clear and they acted. And as a result, the world was changed forever. It's an incredible story. It's our story. And this story takes on power afresh whenever people dare to respond in faith. People just like you and me. People just like us.